This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Get ready, Ohio. FanDuel, America's number one sports book, is coming to the Buckeye State. And to kick things off, you can get started with $100 in free bets as an early sign-up bonus. Plus, when you sign up today with promo code OHIOFD, you'll be all set when FanDuel goes live in Ohio. Then you can bet on all your favorite teams in all your favorite sports with $100 in free bets. Just download FanDuel's top-rated sportsbook app. It's safe, secure, and super easy to use. Ohio, this is your chance to get in on the action. Join today with promo code OHIOFD. Make every moment more with FanDuel, official sportsbook partner of the NFL. 21 or older and present in Ohio. Bonus issued in non-withdrawable free bets that expire seven days after FanDuel accepts its first real money sports wager in Ohio. one Unique user identity verification required. Offer ends on the go-live date. Restrictions apply. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. At Lowe's, we're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch. Now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture. And when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space. Just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only excludes Alaska and Hawaii. All right, it is a film study with Penn McCusick, and if you're listening to this, you should already know that the Ravens won in Pittsburgh on Sunday night, 26-14. to 14. Ken McCusick, how are you doing? Life's good, Josh. How about you? I'm doing all right. So another primetime game in Pittsburgh. We talked about this a little bit last week, but every game that we play in Heinz Field has to be an 8 p.m. game. Yeah, it, it does seem that way, certainly in recent years. You've got a lot of primetime games in Pittsburgh, and you know, they've been fantastic, classic games. The, the the Christmas night game from two years ago, the the thirty nine to thirty eight game last year, and and uh, this game was probably a little bit less of a classic. Certainly, the rest of the nation that that just saw the, the Ravens beat up on the Steelers in the second half, but uh, it's a classic to us here in Baltimore. Well, yeah, it was great because it was the first time in a while that you get into the fourth quarter and you're not stressing. Yeah, there you go. I mean, I think this defense is, is is very different. I mean, they talk about it not being the same old Ravens. 
DPs actually did not blow that many leads this year, but he blew some important ones, including the the, the lead against the Steelers, and, and this town won't ever forgive him for it. What the Ravens have is they have more defensive depth now, and a lot of those players who are in their rookie years under Pease or in their second years under Pease are now in years two and three and are more viable role players, and the defense with its depth is, has more options and can keep people fresher for longer. And we talked about it a little bit with Terrell Suggs and you know, how he made three big plays consecutively at the end of the Denver game. But I think they're getting a broader uh, level of high effort towards the end of the game from their front seven players that need to be exchanged. If, if they keep bringing – so they keep bringing different personnel on and off the field in order to keep them fresh. Is that what was leading to this weird like 10-man, 12-man on the field? Yeah. That's a good point. They need to get that corrected because this is the third time in four games they played a man short. So they had 10 men on the field. What made this one particularly inexcusable is it came immediately after they got flagged for 12 men on the field. So you get flagged for 12 men on the field. There's a stoppage of play. The referees, you know, the officials reset the ball and and they reset the play clock then to 35 seconds or whatever they reset it to. Maybe it's 25. But there's plenty of time to get set again. And then what do they do? They get 11 guys on the field, and then Wormley runs off because he's afraid he's the 12th. So, yeah. <laughs> so it, was a, it was a very weird play. Uh, it took him some time to figure out what was actually going on, even with numbered players on the broadcast, which was kind of funny to watch. But uh, it, it was frustrating, obviously. And that was a play that you know you had a good chance to get burnt because Roethlisberger's an extended pocket guy. They had one less lineman on the field on that play. And if Roethlisberger had taken his time, instead of getting rid of the ball quickly to the left side for a four-yard gain, uh, you know that's a play where you get burned for 30 or 40 or 50 yards, potentially. And then it becomes not so funny anymore that you've given up three yards on three plays with a man short this year. You know, Eventually, we're going to give up some power play goals, effectively. And we've talked about it in those terms before. Right. So, uh, very, very frustrating, but uh, but I, I I'm not sure. I don't think anybody really wants to ask the question of Harbaugh. He's he's talked about not throwing people under the bus for various things, but this this is something that I think it's a coaching issue right now. It may not have been. It may have been a player negligence issue at one point, but if it happens three times due to various player negligence, you got to coach your players into non-negligence. Right, right. So it's a coaching problem at this point, regardless of how you look at yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. There's got to be some way that your players know whether or not they're supposed to be on the field. Um, all right, the second half, complete domination, but it's been that way kind of all season. So we'll get to that in a minute. But the first half, the defense was also impressive because the offense – kind of the offense came out hot, but then they blew some opportunities. Yeah, that's right. So they, they scored two touchdowns, and the defense had a hand in that with a, with a great strip by Jefferson. I'm sure we'll get a chance to talk about that a little bit later. But, uh, you know, they, they, they drove down the field, scored, and then they and then they stripped the ball and scored again. It's 14 to nothing. They had all the momentum. They did give up a field goal at that point to the to the Steelers, but they they – Basically, we're still in a position to do things good on the third drive, up 14-3, to and then they missed Crabtree on a wide-open play, which would have been, I think, a touchdown, but it certainly would have been an enormous gain, 50, 60 yards, if he had gotten run down. But he's five to eight yards behind the defender. In that range, it's very hard to get caught. Um, and, and Flacco just missed him on the play. There was a tiny amount of pressure, but it, but it, it, that shouldn't have really been the issue. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm mixing up my drives because, because before that, they had the fumble near the goal line where they had a chance to go up 21 to three on Alex Lewis's fumble, and of course there that was a big problem that uh, uh, that set them up. Eh, maybe I am in the right order. Uh, whatever. Uh, in any case, they had a chance to go a chance to score their third touchdown with Alex Lewis. Also, they fumbled the ball there, and Alex Lewis, Alex Collins, and uh, and weren't able to fall on it. And the Steelers started to drive from their own one, and they ended up getting a field goal out of that drive. So uh, a frustrating set of circumstances to end the first half tied. In a sense, it was good because the Steelers really were dominating the time of possession in that first half. And it was nice to get to halftime with the lead, with the tie still intact. But uh, they did give up that touchdown to Brown on a very well-thrown ball. And it was, uh, it was just something that, that I think – if you, anybody watching the game would have said the momentum looked like it was all Pittsburgh's at the half. Yes, yeah, and and that 
was concerning. But then, all right, so we go in and we go to the second half, which the Ravens still after this game have yet to give up a touchdown in that second half. They've given up nine points total, all in field goals for the second half for the year. What do you credit that to? Is that the is that the depth? That... Well, you know, in the preseason, we actually talked about this a lot, and I think the defensive depth played a huge uh, uh, impact on the preseason. I think it plays a, a a role in this game. I think the Ravens' defenders were fresher. The Ravens' offensive players probably also fresher. They have a they have good opportunity to swap in some tight ends. They got three guys they really trust right now, and they're about to have a fourth. Uh, you know, come back when Hayden Hurst is back. And all three of the tight ends play pretty well in this game. You get some, you get some offensively, uh, some value from that. But on defense, you know they're five deep at outside linebacker. They've got a, a, three guys they can use at inside linebacker. They've got uh, they're a little shorthanded on the back end this time. So I think a lot of their value really comes on the defensive line that they have multiple guys that they can rotate in and out. Particularly the guy who's taking the inside pass rush snaps can be changed. And it just it, it keeps you fresher, keeps you a better chance to get a decent pass rush in this game, which is exactly what the Ravens did. All right. Um, I guess next thing we talk a lot about this whole quarter, dime, nickel, how they're playing. And there was a whole lot of dime on Sunday. Yeah, that's right. So dime is six defensive backs, just to, for people who are listening to the podcast for the first time. Uh, they played 28 of the 58 snaps with the dime or the quarter, which is seven defensive backs versus the Steelers. Now the Steelers run a lot of wide receiver heavy stats, a lot of empty backfield where they don't even have a running back on the field, or if they do, they're splitting them out. So the Ravens at that point know that uh, they can put in their dime or quarter defense in some down and distance situations. They would not normally do so. So normally you see the dime as a third down defense, as a pass defense, for obvious situations, maybe second and 10 when you're protecting a two touchdown lead, maybe all through the fourth quarter, if you're protect, protecting a, a lead of two touchdowns and you know, the other team's pretty much going to pass on every down at the end of a half, you might use it. Uh, but, but you don't just go to it, you know, early in a game on a second and four play, but the Ravens did some of that in this game. They went early in the game and certainly much more later in the game because the Steelers showed no willingness to run the football. They ran the ball 19 for 19 yards in this game, which, by the way, is the fewest yards the Steelers have run for in a home game since 1952. Right. Now, covers, yeah. yeah, obviously, this part of this is Bell being missing, and that's, right. that's hurting them. But Connor has been pretty good this season anyway. He he had a great first game, and since then he hasn't been too too good. He's got like about a hundred yards rushing in the three games since total. So, All right, so he did well against the Browns. Did well against the Browns. He's had some he's had some receptions since then, and you know the Steelers' offense is mostly a passing attack yes. anyway. So uh, he's it's not he's not a not a useful player. The Ravens would love to have a player like him, I'm sure, as a receiver, but uh, as a as a runner, he's a fairly indifferent player. Right. All right. Now, lots of people outside of Baltimore are talking about Anthony Levine from last night. Yeah. I, I mean, we've we talk about him here on this show all the time, partly because I love the dime so much, and I think Levine had, has been tremendously effective at it. And the Ravens under Dean Pease were tremendously slow to commit to the dime. And we don't need to go through all that history again. If you've listened to this podcast before, you've heard me bitch and moan about it, you know, incessantly. Yep. But in this game, yeah, I got this you. Game, with Levine on the field, they allowed 2.6 yards per play. With Levine not in the game, they allowed 6.8 yards per play. Okay, now a lot of that is a domination in the second half, of course, but a lot of the domination in the second half is Levine. So you got a little chicken and egg thing going on there. Levine had three consecutive drive-ending passes defense on the last three Steelers drives. You don't get to write a new chapter in this rivalry any more boldly than that. And the first one came when they when the Ravens were protecting a six point lead. He stepped into the passing lane, uh, lunged into it. Actually, got the got the got his hand on the uh, pass that fully outstretched, knocked it down, and the Ravens got the ball back, still protecting that six point lead. Then they extended their lead to nine points on that drive, and. The next time he's on the field, he intercepted the ball to effectively put the game away at that point with a couple of minutes left. The Steelers had their timeouts left. They still got the ball back with uh, about a minute and change left. And 
Levine in, in on their last desperate fourth and tenth attempt got another pass defense, and uh, he he was the star of this one and by uh, by any stretch. And the thing that I liked about this and what this game showed more than just hey Anthony Levine is a hell of a football player, which he is. He he was a good player last year. He's a good player this year, but he really showed why he's a different skill set than the linebacker you would typically have in the game in the nickel. So in the nickel, we've, we've talked about this a little bit, but let's remind people that when you're in the nickel, you have a second inside linebacker typically on the field, and that would be maybe Kenny Young, and it was for most of this game. But when you go to the dime, you remove Kenny Young from the game, and Levine goes in. Well, what does Kenny Young bring you? Kenny Young is a fantastic downhill player. He runs to the football like almost nobody on the Ravens, and that means... He rushes the passer effectively. He runs to a running back and fills gaps, sometimes, you know, uh, recklessly, but but always, right. you know, very quickly and, 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 and well, I think, in generally in terms of the result. Um, he can cover a, a running back coming out of the back backfield and man. He can he can react to a running back or react to a screen pass very quickly as long as the play is in front of him. All those things are very useful. But what Levine gives you is something more, and it really is terrific as against the Steelers' particular weapons, is they like to get between level two and level three with their routes, which means they want to get behind the linebackers and in front of the safeties. And they did a lot of that with Brown and with Schuster trying to cross in that area behind or find a soft spot in that zone. And that's when that, those were the passes that Levine broke up all three times, were passes in the middle of the field to either Brown or Schuster, uh, that ended those three straight drives. And he had he both read Roethlisberger and had a good understanding of where the passing lanes were and was able to close that window by moving laterally to take away that passing lane from, from Big Ben. So did a good job in, in that. And I would argue this is probably Levine's career moment right right here. I think this is the, the game he'd want to show his grandkids if he, uh, if he keeps the recording. And, uh, you know, he, had, he certainly had an interception. It's one of only a couple he's had in his career. Right. He did other things big. He's had some unbelievable preseason games, of course. But, but this, in terms of the regular season, is the one game I would point to. Was, was there something that lined up with this game for him to be the perfect guy? Or is this something we're going to see him build on? Well, I think, I think that his, his skill set really works out well with the Steelers' set of offensive weapons because they really look so heavily to hit the middle of the field behind the linebackers. So because he's specifically a guy who understands what's going on behind, he's one of the few players that can help you defend that part of the field. Whereas the, the Ravens earlier in the game, for instance, when they had Mosley and Young on the field, now Mosley's not terrible at understanding what's going on behind him, but he ain't no Levine, let's put it that way. And Kenny Young really at this point in his career has very little realization of what it, what's going on behind him. He's a, he's a lean forward player all the way. And so when those guys were, were back, um, you know, both covering that short middle zone and trying to figure out where the ball is going behind him. They had, they had a lot of trouble with that. And the Ravens actually, on two instances, and we jump into the pass rush here a little bit, but blitzed their safety. So once they blitzed Weddle, he got pressure, and the, the Ben threw for a gain of, I think it was 38. And another time, they blitzed Jefferson, and he threw for a gain of 23. And in both cases... They th ben, threw, with a safety blitzing, was able to pick up on that and threw the ball to the receiver who got behind the linebackers. So in both those cases, they, uh, you know, he was able to come up with a big play because he understood that that really exposed the Ravens to, to, to blitz in that manner. So I, that's what the linebackers will have more trouble doing is, is ever giving you good coverage on any kind of player who's behind them. All right. Um Let's get into the pass rush, because it seemed like even though we were going in, we weren't really getting to Ben. No, they, they didn't. They, they certainly didn't overly pressure Ben in this game. They did compress the pocket some, and they, they did not give him all that many ample time and space opportunities. He had under 50% ample time and space. Okay. It was 48% ample time and space. Um, but they only got one sack, and they only knocked him down four times as I counted it. So, you know, from that perspective, you'd say they didn't really pressure Ben. From another perspective, I think they did a good job of not allowing Ben to get free outside the pocket. So with fairly controlled rush lanes, 
there were only a few instances where he kind of scrambled out of the pocket and made one of those extended plays where he has a clean line of sight in front of him and can see the entire field and can wait for other receivers to go into their scramble drill and do those things that just confound us about the Steelers whenever we play them, whenever the Ravens play them. So, uh, you know, they they kept him in the trash compactor for most of that game. I honestly am of the opinion that Ben is less effective when he stays in the pocket, and and I think that that's, you know, would be what you'd expect. Tom Brady, obviously, is going to be much more effective when he doesn't have to move at all. Peyton Manning was much more effective when he didn't have to move at all. Ben likes the cleaner sight lines, likes the change of sight line, of sight vector that, that allows him to throw the football from a slightly different angle into an open space. I think he does better with that. So, uh, you know, this was a good game for for keeping him in other wraps. And then they they got him into a variety of forced and unforced errors that accrued from that. So, you know, in terms of unforced errors, he certainly gave the Ravens some significant gifts in this game. He threw a ball that was way behind Brown, which looked to me like it was going probably for a touchdown, but at least for a gain of 30 to 50 yards, right. uh, which was 17 yards in the middle of the field kind of thing. And, and he, he had beaten Humphrey by, by four or five yards on, uh, laterally on that play, and it was going to go for a big gain. Um, he, he grounded two plays, you know, that where he uh, uh, grounded a pump fake. So he, you know, he threw the ball into the ground, and it was it was an incomplete pass when when it was a pump fake. But I mean, those those were strange plays. We've seen an interception once by Haloti Nada that fell into that category. But to see two of those in one games was was kind of nice. Right. Uh, you know, when he did have ample time and space in the pocket, he would occasionally get rid of the ball too quickly. And I'm remembering a specific play to Brown by the left sideline where he overthrew the ball, and he had a chance for that to be you know a four or five second pocket because every single blocker was taken care of, or every single pass rusher was taken well, care that, of. And yeah, and that it. might go to what you were saying of him being more comfortable out of the pocket. Yeah. And when we forced him to stay in the pocket, it might have helped lead to that stuff. Yeah, well, there you go. It it, uh, it really was something. So anyway, we, we want to talk a little bit more about the pass rush. The one, one other thing I, I want to say is the Ravens were much more effective when they rushed four or fewer in this game. So when they rushed four or fewer, the Ravens allowed 4.2 yards per pass play. You will beat the Pittsburgh Steelers every time if you allow 4.2 yards per pass play. When they rushed five plus, Ben burned them for 10.1 yards per play. Now that seems like a bad thing. Like you're, that's going to stymie your pass rush if you always have to rush four or fewer. But I'm going to tell you this. If you have an effective four-man rush, as is indicated by the low yards per pass on the three- and four-man rushes, that is the best possible path to beat good quarterbacks in the NFL, which is what the Ravens will end up facing in the playoffs, uh, we hope, this year. Sure. I I hope so. It's been a fun season. It's looking that way. And I guess if that way, if you're only rushing four, that means you've got that extra guy back there for that midfield. Yeah, so you, you you have seven guys in coverage. Uh, and, and you could have eight, but you have seven at least in coverage, and and you have uh, more opportunity to close windows if you have guys who can do that, like Levine uh, on the back end. Uh, in terms of elements of deception, I did also want to hit on that, Josh. That yeah. the, we're kind of monitoring Martindale relative to the 2006 P's unit, and he'd averaged 17 uh, blitzes per game to date, and that compared to six and change out of Dean P's last season. Uh, hit 17 again from off the line of scrimmage in this game. So even though they're rushing four, what that means is they're doing a lot of zone blitzing, which means they're dropping someone from the line into into coverage, and usually a, a, an outside linebacker, and then rushing with another player. So they did a lot of that. They rushed off the slot some. They rushed Mosley some. They rushed Kenny Young some, and he got some pressures. So they, they the blitzes that they that they threw at the Steelers, I thought were were particularly effective in terms of generating a little bit of the pressure that they got. They they didn't get all that much pressure from their base four man rush. Okay, were the um, announcers making too big of a deal of C.J. Mosley falling for the um, uh, play action? Often you see that. Um, I a, a couple times he a couple times you saw Mosley kind of jump in thinking the, it was a, a run and play and of mm-hmm. course it's a it's a pass and then this guy gets past him right i, I mean I, it's not you it wouldn't be an unfair criticism of mosley or of linebackers in general and this kind of goes hand in hand with linebackers being better downhill players okay. so, i mean they're they're looking 
to take the opportunity to shoot a gap. And and most linebackers, if you if you show them the opportunity, if you show them the piece of meat, they're going to go after it. Gotcha. And you know it's it. Right, it's it's the whole reason that Roethlisberger's doing that play is to yeah. draw mostly in. So, of course, it's going to work. Um, all right, Kenny Young got a lot of playing time as well. Yeah, so Mosley was back and Mosley played every snap. So that's terrific news for the Ravens, obviously, because they really need a solid linebacker that they trust. They trust Mosley. By the way, very interesting that Mosley did not get the green dot helmet back. And one thing that was that was pointed out by the announcers on the game a little bit, Collinsworth was mentioning that he had to run around the field a lot to make calls. And I do think that they would probably prefer to have Mosley making the calls if that was the only element that they were really concerned about. But there's got to be something they like about Weddle that made them decide to stay with Mosley in this game. Well, Could also be... Uh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just assumed it's the fact that he was a game-time decision. Mm-hmm. And and who knows if he was going to get out there for one drive and say, I can't do it anymore. Yeah, that that is a possibility. That's really the, the issue. If they thought that Mosley wasn't going to be able to go the entire game, then they would have had to switch helmets and there would have been a, you know, a, a minor inconvenience from that. So it is possible that that's the reason why they why they did it for this game i i'm still a little bit surprised by it i honestly think there's something they like about weddle and even though mosley is healthy weddle probably have the green dot the rest of the season given he had it for this game but that's just right, that's something I, to watch for yeah three to two three to two likelihood not not a hundred percent but you know sixty percent likely right so with mosley out there that means kenny young went in for peanut yeah so so peanut I, I, you know first of all the, the second inside linebacker spot isn't getting all that many snaps in total because they play 28 out of 58 dime snaps, which means you've got Levine in there for those snaps. Take away three more snaps because they played some jumbo nickel, which means they only play one inside linebacker in those plays. And now you're down to, to dividing up 27 remaining snaps between Kenny Young and Peanut, and Kenny Young got the bulk of those. Peanut only played six snaps in this game. Uh, so I would say they have now made the move, and Kenny Young is going to be the second inside linebacker the rest of the year. He certainly outplayed Peanut. Uh, Owasu had a uh, nice interception in the last game. It was a big play, but uh, I don't care what anybody's telling you about scores and whatnot. Kenny Young is outplaying Peanut right now this year. And he had three pressures in this game, looked good doing that. Uh, didn't show everything else he's shown, but then the Steelers didn't run the ball that much, so he didn't have a lot of opportunity to show his gap shooting. Um, and didn't have too much opportunity on on pass plays in this game either. But, uh, you know, a a solid effort by Kenny Young, and and nice to see the Ravens have finally made a decision instead of, you know, the slow torture of deciding between Correa and Awasu last year, which took them, what, about six weeks to figure out that they wanted Awasu as the guy. Right, no, I mean, and I think that has to, part of that has to be the fact that Kenny Young played well last week, uh, filling in for Mosley. Um, all right, now you mentioned that there was only two plays that Williams and Pierce were on the field together. Yeah, so I, this is just a really interesting thing because last year it was a big deal. In Pierce's second year, he's in year three now, obviously, they moved Pierce to be the full-time nose tackle and brought in Williams. They moved Williams to be the three-tech when he plays with Pierce. And he's still a nose in other cases, but a lot of times they were playing together and it was... Pierce at the nose and Williams at the three tech. So they they've really now changed to to this year almost never having those two on the field together. Now there aren't that many teams in the NFL that are super run heavy, but Buffalo would have been a team that you know with that with a rookie quarterback and and uh, uh, you know Shady McCoy that you might have thought they would have played a lot more together. They didn't. They played you know half a dozen snaps or something together against Buffalo. I, I, I'm expecting that there may be an opponent this year that they play a lot together. But you know what's happening this week? Willie Henry is supposed to practice. So he'll be back, and those DL snaps will get um, more distributed among among more players. So th- this is a team still with, with seven defensive linemen on the roster. Zach Sealer got a little bit of playing time last week, but he isn't likely to see the field again for a while now if, uh, if Henry is back. I think what will happen is they'll keep similar players on the field for the first two downs, which means a lot of Wormley, a lot of Williams, and a lot of 
Pierce. But then on third down, we're going to see more Urban, who's been actually the most overtaxed lineman so far and probably playing a lot with Henry. And then there, there'll be some competition for snaps on those passing downs because those two guys also have to compete with Zadarius Smith, who is used from the inside as a rusher and has already had a really terrific season. So I don't think they're going to want to take him off the field. So it's going to be very interesting to see how they divide snaps and it should be very competitive. And I think at all the other positions, that seems to lead to well-rested, hungry defenders. And it's, uh, it's exciting to see. Yeah. Why so uh, few snaps on the defensive line? Is this part of the game changing? Yeah, it, it probably is. Um, so against the Steelers, first of all, they, they ran a lot of dime. And so when you run dime, you only have two defensive linemen at most. But when it's a true passing situation and you know the other team's going gonna, to gonna be slinging it most of the time, they move uh, Zedaria Smith the inside and they have an extra outside linebacker on the field. So that really reduces the total number of, of offensive linemen. I think I calculated this from my article, but it's, I think it's 1.57 um, uh, defensive lineman per play, and that number could be anywhere between, you know, zero. I suppose if you never used a, a defensive lineman, and three, which is really the most you ever use in a three-four defense, uh, occasional jumbo sets at the goal line. But basically, you know, one point five seven is very few total defensive snaps to divide among four active players, and it's going to be five in the coming weeks. So. It'll be interesting to see how they do that and, and how they how they work this out. Unfortunately, sometimes these things work themselves out by injury. Let's hope that that's not the case. But uh, some players like Wormley, who, who I think has been playing pretty well, may end up being a guy who loses snaps uh, when when Henry returns. All right. Uh, let's talk about the secondary for a little bit because it, the secondary is where we have fallen apart in the past with the Steelers with the big plays. And they kept the Steelers pretty quiet this week. Yeah, I, I thought the secondary really won this game in most respects for the Ravens. You'll see it in some of my MVP uh, three stars uh, grouping uh, that, that, that I really think the secondary is what did it. For starters, they, they played shorthanded in this game. And I'm not talking about 10 men on the field at this point. I'm talking about the fact they only had eight active defensive backs for the game. So that was four safeties, which is normal, and four cornerbacks, which is scary. To go into an NFL games with only four active cornerbacks, you need three on the bulk of plays against the Steelers. If anyone has gotten hurt, we're you know just a heartbeat away from from uh, Darius Williams being in the game at slot corner, regardless of which of the three corners had gotten hurt, and that would have been a you know not the proposition you want to have against the Pittsburgh Steelers, and they would have I'm sure been able to exploit that. Uh, so. The shorthanded play had me very concerned, but the Ravens got away with it. No injuries in this game. And now, of course, you know, a week from now we get Jimmy Smith back. And, uh, you know, that's going to provide the Ravens with some much, much, much needed depth at corner. Right. And, I mean, that'll be huge. And interesting to see how they uh, how they use Jimmy Smith along with these guys. So, because uh, Carr, they were saying, has never missed a start in his yeah. career. That's right, and see, so it's one of the longest streaks of anybody. There might, I, I don't know if it's Philip Rivers or somebody has a longer streak of, of, of starts, but uh, Carr, in fact, stepped up with a big comeback game, so there will be questions, I think, about who the starter is, how they rotate in with snaps. I, I don't think it's going to be Jimmy Smith back with 100% of the snaps immediately. I don't think necessarily Carr is going to lose his starting game after a game like this, but going into... Come, coming out of last week, going into this week, I did think it, it was probably going to be Carr sitting down when, when Jimmy Smith returned. Now, not as clear to me. And, uh, you know, they probably could re revert to the 2017 situation where uh, Jimmy Smith and Humphrey effectively shared one spot. And each of them played about 55% of the team's snaps. And, and that, that could be what we see for some of the rest of this year. I think Humphrey is the number one cornerback. I'd, I'd hate to see his snaps drop significantly. Carr is a guy who could certainly give up some snaps. Um, they may or may not artificially keep his starting streak intact. Um, one of the questions I had for, for Jeff Srebeck today was whether or not he, I thought, he thought that Jimmy Smith would be losing starts based on the fact that the Ravens should be pretty pissed off with him over these multiple suspensions. And whether you right. think the domestic violence suspension is BS, it could be. But whether or not you believe that, he's got the damning consistency of also a PED suspension to go with that. Yes. So, you know, it's it's 
I would expect the Ravens would be fairly pissed off with him about that. Zrebeck says no, that, that Harbaugh and Smith are very close and that uh, he's likely to, to step back in and, and get a significant but not 100% of the snaps going All right. back. All right, so he, he avoids the doghouse. Yes. Um, yeah, and you had mentioned maybe he'll share with Humphrey. Humphrey got picked on because he was facing Antonio Brown the whole night, but Brown only got five receptions, 62 yards, so I think that's a win when you're when you're covering yeah. Humphrey or covering yeah, that, Brown. That's a good point. There's a little more to it than that because you know certainly Brown made a great touchdown grab that I defy many quarterbacks in the entire NFL to stop. So yes. I don't blame Humphrey too much for that. But Humphrey was beaten and had a very good yet costly holding penalty early in the game on second and ten that converted a converted a uh, first down obviously for for the Steelers. Um, he had another play where he got bailed out of a 19-yard play that got reversed to a zero gain, which was there was an improper spot on the ball. We don't need to get into that. But the but the uh, crackback block against Mosley effectively wiped out most of that catch against Humphrey. So he, he had a couple of things. There was another the big play I mentioned that that Roethlisberger missed Brown over the middle of the field. It could have gone for 30 to 50 yards. That was Humphrey in coverage. Now, you were allowed to get lucky a certain amount, but Humphrey had, there were a lot of mitigating factors in this game. Humphrey also missed two tackles as I scored it. So uh, he had, he, uh, it wasn't a bunch of additional yardage, but it wasn't good. He just, he had a rough night. I think he would say it wasn't his best effort, even if though Antonio Browns was, you know, held in reasonable check, 62 yards. 62 yards, if you do that for a whole season, that's, that's almost exactly 1,000 yards, obviously. Thousand yards we think of as being too low for Antonio Brown, yes. and it prob- probably is. Yeah, and and one touchdown is too low for Antonio Brown. Well, let's see. Then you have sixteen for a season. I think I think the Steelers would take that out of Brown, but we'd we'd see. I, I don't think Brown would be happy with that. But we'll <laughs> see. Um, all right, did I miss anything? Or are we ready for MVPs? Tony Jefferson. Let's talk about him. Okay, of course he got the big strip or yeah, so- or interception, however you want to call it. Yeah, I mean, and it was a fumble recovery, as they called it. It looked like an interception to me, but here's what really amused me about this game. I thought Jefferson had a fine game in total, but clearly NBC came prepared in terms of their video, in terms of the the interviews they did, in terms of all the pregame prep to make Vance McDonald a folk hero. Yes. And the the tight end who had had stiffed the guy and basically had, you know, talked about – you know him channeling the Avengers to, to get yeah, all made the power no. of his stiff right. arm into the, in, in the Tampa Bay game, and they showed that. And Collinsworth could not stop talking about how you know you don't understand how much that picks a team up to 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 stiff arm a guy and run for additional yardage. And then you know as soon as he broke two tackles and had a 33 yard play in this game, we got to look at that same spiel over again. Yes, you know, and and that came after. He got stripped by a guy he outwaves by 55 pounds right. in the in the flat open field, <laughs> and you know he's being tackled on the play. That's bad enough. He probably shouldn't go down that easily. But second of all, he gets stripped. You know, right? And, he had a fun oh, highlight he, last week, and they yeah. got every bit they could get out of it. Yes, yeah, they they really did. They they worked it, and I I cannot find the exact point, but it was the point was made to me that. Collinsworth said something, and I'll paraphrase and probably get it wrong, but that good luck getting Vance McDonald down was the, was the actually he might have said good luck stripping the ball from Vance McDonald, but it was it was something like to, to that effect. And you know, I'm like, just we just saw that. You know, did you forget what happened in that first quarter? And that 33 yard run, as nice as it was, as many tackles were broken in terms of what it meant in terms of expected points, expected wins, it was a hell of a lot less important than Jefferson's strip play. A hell of a lot less important. Uh, yes, except you're forgetting that we can't have the big hits in football anymore, so they need to be getting excited about some highlight. So <laughs> why a not a, a legal stiff arm yeah. that, that looks hard? All right, there you go. Settle me down, Josh. Keep me moving. So, all right, uh, let's, let's get to our MVPs. And uh, this is where you pick like the three guys who did really good, and I try to come out with three guys that you didn't think about that also contributed to the game. I'll, I'll do the best I can. He's 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 pointing to his own disadvantage in this is that he can't pick my own guys, but he certainly can. I wouldn't have any objection. Number three for me, Brandon Carr. Nice comeback game. Uh, three PDs in the game, including an end zone pass defense against Schuster, 
a thing of beauty just popped it directly from beneath uh, uh, from between his hands turned a seven point drive into three uh, and that was really one of the big play, plays of the game so Carr good night in coverage and, and that was the highlight alright uh, my number three is Terrell Suggs simply because he is now the heart of this matchup and he gets he is you don't show him on the sideline he's involved in watching every play on the offense he's paying attention he is the guy who is getting these young guys up and excited and teaching them that this is what it means to play Ravens football but I wonder what Suggs, how Suggs able to be transfer his football savvy to the next whoever, the next leader, the next generation of players. Whether he would become a coach himself, I don't know. I don't know how he'll do it. But his ability to do things on the field, he just hasn't really seemed to be able to to, to to make anybody else do the same things. The play that really struck me was on third and three. They had a, a play to get the ball wide to Switzer on a play and let him run for the first down. Well, Suggs diagnosed it from a wide nine technique on the left side, on the offensive left side. And instead of rushing the passer, he rushed a little bit wide to try and cut down the passing lane for Ben Roethlisberger. Well, Roethlisberger saw that, and as his arm motion is kind of going through the strike zone or, or through the release zone, he changed his release point to be low and, and, and outside where Switzer had to dive back for the ball, made the catch for a loss of five instead of that having a chance to go for a first down. So I think it would have probably been defended if he had thrown the ball on target for Switzer, but still, Suggs, incredible football savvy, Red Ben in terms of what he was trying to accomplish and what the what the formation was showing him. And I just wish there was some way that he could translate that knowledge or or transfer that knowledge to the next generation of Ravens defenders. Right, yeah. And there's and it's fun because there's he doesn't know any quarterbacks as well as he knows Ben Roethlisberger and Tom Brady. Yeah. Yeah, and there you go. I mean Ben Roethlisberger in particular has had two of these peekaboo interceptions and and you're right. I mean, he he knows those guys and he really just plays with them like a cat plays with a mouse. All right. Uh, who else do you have on your list? Number two is Tony Jefferson for me. Uh, obviously had the biggest biggest single play of the game, that, that strip that got them, uh, got them going, or, or certainly one of the biggest two. And uh, otherwise played well when they, when they kept him on the back end. I think he's playing better as a center fielder. He didn't have too much in terms of box responsibility this game. What he did have, and what I'm, I'm liking seeing, is that he has more direct coverage of the tight end responsibility had more of that in this game and particularly with the Steelers having good tight ends that was real value provided to the coverage efforts for the Ravens in this one all right uh, my number two is the Ravens offense because there's nothing that scares me more about the Steelers than the fourth quarter offensive drives and for the Ravens to run the clock for over 10 minutes with the ball in that drive in the fourth quarter and I at one point, it was like Ben had seven or eight snaps in the fourth quarter mm-hmm. before the game was out of hand. Is just amazing and really took all of that stress and pressure out of the fourth quarter for me. Yeah, they, they, the Steelers only ran 11 plays in quarter four, and they got a total on those plays of 20 yards. Yeah, that, so. and, and most of those yards probably came under two minutes. Uh, uh, no? I won't argue with you. But All right. it's, 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 That's my memory. In the last two drives, and then 20, 20 on the first All drive. Right. Okay, there we go. But, but, but anyway, it was, a, it was a, uh, a great fourth quarter for the defense, and they really you know, showed up rested and, and looked great as they came down the stretch. Great call on that, by the way, because there's no, there's no defense like a good offense, and, uh, and they really did. Right. It might be a cheat, yeah. but. No, you're, yeah. you're fine. Number one, Anthony Levine, uh, you know, obviously writes a new chapter in the in the rivalry here. This is this is his moment in terms of of the play he had, and to end those last three drives, all three of them with his own pass defense, is really something I've never seen before. So uh, we've seen some streaky play of Ravens history. I went back once in 2013 and tried to look at the number of total players who ever had three PDs in a single game, and there were at that point there were right around a hundred. Uh, that had ever done it. So it doesn't happen every game by any stretch. It's more like once every three games, somebody's able to do it. But not only did he have three passes defense, all three of his passes defense ended drives, which is really spectacular. All right. And uh, my guy is uh, Don Martindale, because I cannot keep him off my list every week. 
both offense and defensive coordinators are always going to be on my top list this year because I love the creativity and excitement that they're not playing boring football. Yeah, how much fun has this been? I mean, Martindale has exceeded my expectations in every way. And, and honestly, I thought the Ravens should have really tried to bring in every super candidate they could to talk to about this job. But I think Martindale, the combination of his familiarity with the players, the fact that he's obviously a player's coach, and they love they love the increased responsibility of this, this system – the fact that there's some competition for staffs and Martindale is, seems to be very good at rotating in players and keeping them fresh. All those things mean he is really a 90th percentile candidate for this job that, you know, they could have gone out and gotten, you know, Zimmer or, you know, any number of other people who are who might have been available uh, to, to come in and manage their defense. And I don't think that, any, that most of the available guys would have been any better and they certainly could have made a big hiring mistake. So, uh, a, a good one for there, and Marty on the offense. It's just it's been pure excitement. We're going to talk about that a little bit more on the next thing. But the the Max Williams play in particular is just the kind of outside the box thinking I just absolutely love to see. All right, um, all right. Well, let's get to the mailbag, as since you're uh, teasing it, and again, getting your your questions on Twitter using the hashtag Film Study Mailbag. Questions, comments, whatever. It'll help drive the show uh, during this segment each week. So, uh, all right, you mentioned the Max Williams tweet. Do you want to get into that today, or do you want to save that for the offense? You know, we can we can talk about it now since it's fresh all in right. my mind. Um, so, I'm sure most everybody has seen the play by now. If not, I'll briefly describe it. Max Williams lined up effectively what would be the left guard position, and normally the middle five guys are not eligible if they're on the line of scrimmage, but Max Williams was back off the line of scrimmage and released into the pattern, was not picked up, and Flacco hit him for a gain of 22, I think, uh, at a very critical time in the game. So it was, it was third and one, I believe, on the play, and uh, and that was one of the big big plays that kept the Ravens' drive moving that uh, that eventually would go down and get a field goal. So anyway... Uh, and that's a play that Joe said that they've tried this before that they've practiced it many times but that it's the first time that the tight ends actually gotten open well i don't think they've they've they ever they've never ran it in a game in a, oh no because okay. I mean, for one thing i chart the offensive line play so right. one of the first things we have to do is decide if the if it's balanced or unbalanced or who's where and whatnot and, and anything like this we pick up i mean it's it'd kind of like be missing 10 men on the field when you're when you're trying to note who's on the field for every single play. That's what you're trying to do. So they've gotcha. never they've never done this specific one ever before, line up somebody in the middle who's eligible. But anyway, the the the, the other comment I want to make about this is Gene Steratore came out and said he thought it should have been a foul. Right. He well, said it was like two inches off or something. Yeah. I mean, here, here's, here's why that's absolute bullshit. Um, if you lined up your guard in that position, 100% of the time, you would get a foul. And you get a foul because it's an illegal formation where the guard is obviously not up to the to the required level of having his helmet over the center's um, uh, uh, waist. If it's an illegal place for the guard to be, it is by definition a legal place for Max Williams to start off. So there's no way in hell that should have been called. And, and Steratore, if he really thought about the problem from both angles here, he'd realize that that wasn't the case. The other thing they asked Steratore was, is there anyone who would pick that up in real time? Well, they didn't have to pick it up in real time. The the Ravens meet with the officials before the game, and one of the things they discuss is what trick plays they're going to run. And they need the officials to be prepared for them so they don't get over-officious with the play and make a mistake that will, that will kill them. So they, I'm sure... The Ravens went to the officials ahead of the game, told them about this play, said, hey, this is what's coming, look for it. And they may also say, hey, we want you to watch player so-and-so for, for a foul, but they would have told them this was coming and, and, and to make sure that they didn't um, get a uh, uh, get an illegal formation or a ineligible receiver downfield call accruing from it. All right, that's interesting. I did not know that the Ravens went over some of their plays with the officials beforehand. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure, but I, I was on uh, 105.7, and Garceau told me today, yeah, yeah, they still do that as far as as far as he's aware. But he w he was doing some sort of interview segment, and when they did that, he would often have to wait for them to be done with their meeting with the officials. 
So gotcha. that was interesting. He, he yeah. uh, had that background. I would love to see Belichick talking with the officials. Yeah. <laughs> if he tells them anything. Um, all right, while while we're getting into officiating, let's take Minion Hunter's uh, tweet. What happened in the blindside block penalty? Uh, why wasn't it third and 19? They made third and four. Uh, looked like they never moved the stick, something weird. So that was where it was third and four. They caught a 15-yard penalty on a blindside bat block, and then it was third and four again. I also right, so, was confused in real time. Okay, so so let me explain. So it's a spot foul. So the, 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 the spot of the foul is what determines where you mark it off from. And then, like having a holding call, say, down two, two yards downfield, which happened to the Ravens in this game, by the way, you might get a first and ten, you gain two yards on the holding play, and then the holding is assessed, and it moves you back to first and 18. Okay. Right. This was a similar play, in that the, but it just happened to be that as the referee saw it, the, the foul occurred 15 yards downfield, Exactly, and it moved the, the penalty moved it back exactly 15 yards. There's no loss of down, so they had a second, third, and four opportunity. Yeah. So that's how the referee saw it, and how it actually happened is that the play was should have been four yards further back based on where the foul occurred, or six yards further back based on where the ball is at the time of the foul, which I believe is the correct way to assess that. So the ball was actually at the 26-yard line, and the foul occurred at the 24, um, and it should have been moved to, to back to the 41-yard line after the 15-yard penalty, which would have left the the Steelers at 3rd and 10 instead of 3rd and 4. So missed spot of the ball by the officials, but in terms of why it happened, it's because of this the, the nature of the spot foul is why they got another 3rd and 4 opportunity. Right, right. It was... It was poorly explained on television as they just kind of ran past it and didn't didn't make any reference to it. Um, all right, Mark asks, is it possible to put a draft value on Tucker, as in where would you draft him if you knew how good he'd be? Okay, so I, I try to answer this question a little bit on Twitter, but it gets to be kind of complex. If If you have perfect knowledge and nobody else has perfect knowledge, and you can go back to 2000, the 2012 draft, if that's what he is referring to, and draft him, you'd certainly want to ascribe some draft pick value to him because you're not 100% sure that, any, you know, that everybody will not draft him. And maybe if drafting the fourth round, that would certainly do it. That would be efficient in terms of your value. If you're going to say what was he worth, if you knew what his entire career arc would be in 2012, he's worth a first-round pick. It's pretty freaking clear. Right, uh, he, he's he's, probably, <laughs> he's on his way to Canton if he can continue yeah. this with his career, but right. you would be laughed at if you took a kicker in the first round. And and you know some teams have done that. Uh, Russell Erksleben was one of the top players taken overall in the seventies, and and is still a, a kind of a funny combination kicker punter that didn't work out. And there've been some other places. I think that didn't Tampa Bay use a second round pick in recent years to to take a guy that they cut in the second year? Anyway, I don't know. It's what it's what your girlfriend does if you let her in your fantasy league. <laughs> And you're paying her entry fee probably in that case. Right. But anyway, the, the I think also what, what Mark is asking is if the if somebody wanted Tucker and we were to trade him at this point, what could what would we trade Tucker for? It, it's different more difficult to do that because Tucker makes millions of dollars now and he and he's paid in theory a market value for his services. I don't know if that's really true in Tucker's case, so it's really then an adjudication of how much under his true market value is Tucker making? So at four million a year, could you really justify eight million a year for this kicker? Well, maybe. And then he has some, he has some value. Maybe he's worth a third to fifth round pick. Uh, you know, maybe even a little bit more. But you know, the Ravens are not trading him, obviously. So uh, uh, I don't think there's an issue there. Right, right. I'm always amazed with 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 Tucker that he is so good. And for years, we said, oh well. Stover's amazing. We'll never have a kicker like Stover, and Tucker is so much better than Stover was. That's right. That's right. Uh, Tucker, the stats they had last night were really good ones, by the way. They, uh, they, they posted three percentages or three distances up there. So they had, first of all, 90% success rate is the highest in NFL history. His average length of field goal made is only about 38 and a half yards, but that is the longest in NFL history. I would have guessed longer. For him, because he's kicked a lot of 50-plus field goals in his right. career, but he's kicked some shorter ones too, obviously. Um, and then the average miss was probably the most impressive number. The average miss for Justin Tucker has come from over 50 yards. It's like 
that really tells you that he's take, making longer, harder kicks, and those are where his misses come. In fact, you know we've had the thing come up on the show that he's made 19 consecutive field goals between 50 and 57 yards. He last missed between 50 and 57 yards in December of 2015 against the Dolphins when he missed from 55 wide right. Right. Since then, he's made every single one of his kicks from, from those distances. Yeah, and for some reason, he loves to kick in Heinz Field, which makes no sense. It's it's known for having a horrible field, and he loves to kick there. Yeah, bad field and, and bad wind conditions, particularly at the open end. Maureen always reminds me of that. Oh, it's to the close end. It'll be fine. So it, it, there is a difference, but the open end of the stadium has far less field goal success there, and it's, a, it's just an interesting place to kick, and I, there are very few kickers, as you mentioned, who would like to kick. Right. It's, it's got to be that he like, he has bought in on the rivalry and likes to just kick against their fans. There's no, other, there's no stadium reason <laughs> to, like that. All right, Ken, what else is going on this week and over at Russell Street? Okay, so on, on Russell Street Report, my regular articles will be out. The defense is up right now. A lot more detail in other things we talked about on, on this program. If you like to look at charts of the pass rush and all the other specifics, it's there. Follow me on Twitter, at Film Study Ravens. Uh, please get your questions in to pound, study, pound sign Film Study Mailbag. We're still hoping to have a Browns guest this week. And we had trouble because we had one guy who we really wanted to get who, who was not able to do it. Now I'm going to try and find somebody new. But assuming we're able to do that, we will uh, we'll we'll create a podcast. Those have been very popular, and yes. thanks for your feedback on that. If you would please do what Josh says, toss us out a review. How do they do that, Josh? Uh, iTunes, Google Play, any of those. Uh, go write a review. Tell your friends on Twitter. Just continue to spread the word, and that helps the show out a whole lot. All right, outstanding. And Josh, uh, tell us a little bit yeah. about Birdland Sports. Uh, well, I'll plug Section 336 tonight because a brand new episode of Section 336 came out tonight, which is available on Birdland Sports. And uh, we get into some Ravens talk as uh, fans, not not so deep. But uh, the big thing we get into is we say goodbye to Adam Jones, and uh, he will no longer be an Oriole. It's pretty clear they're not bringing him back. It's pretty clear Buck Showalter probably isn't coming back either, so we addressed that a little bit. But we look a little bit back at his career and what we'll remember him by. Okay, what, now why is what's the reason? I understand completely why they wouldn't bring Adam Jones back because you have to ask yourself in terms of any player, can this player contribute to the next to the next Orioles champion? And if you can't, right, you know the first decision should probably be to let him go, particularly expensive players. But why would they not consider bringing Showalter back? Uh, I think they actually have to consider it. I think the concern would be, does Buck want to be here for another rebuild? Okay. Um, and then there's been some conflict between Buck and Dan Duquette. So if they want to keep Dan Duquette, as it sounds like, then he might not want Buck. Huh. So I, I, I don't know. It's also hard to bring back a how you bring back your manager – with a contract extension after losing 115 games. <laughs> they so, have to have somebody to play, Somebody needs a head on a pike here? Yes. Something's okay. got to change. But, uh, no, I'd love Buck Showalter. I would have no problem if they re-signed him for another three, four, five years. Right. So, all right, Ken. Well, we will talk uh, soon and go through the fun offense performance that we got to watch. Sounds good, Josh. Have a good night. We're your go-to for great gardening values every day. That's why we've lowered our price on select bagged mulch, now starting at just $2.88 a bag. Mulch helps prevent weeds and retains moisture, and when you put it down around trees, shrubs, and flower beds, you'll see how beautiful it makes your outdoor space, just in time to welcome back family and friends. Shop online and pick up in-store. Lowe's, home to the best part of summer. Selection and product availability vary by location. While supplies last, U.S. only. Excludes Alaska and Hawaii.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.